Good morning. My pleasure to be with you this morning to join in the worship of Almighty God and bring glory to his name. Turn with you with me, if you will, to the passage which Connor mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I'm going to read the first 15 verses of this passage. And incidentally, the message today is dealing with primarily one word in this passage, as uh, you will see, I think, as we read it and hear God's word. Then the Lord said to Nathan, to David, and he came to him and said to him, there were two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children. It ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom. And it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, and gave you the house of Israel in Judah. And if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son, for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And so may God bless to our reading and understanding this word from his holy word. The word I want you to look at today and center our attention upon is in verse 14. That word in the Hebrew, the first word of that passage is however, or therefore, or 
what has happened in, in a sense. How be it? However, when you think about that word and pause on it, and I don't know whether you ever have or not, but do so at this point, it suggests that sin has been forgiven in this passage of scripture. David was forgiven. His sins were forgiven by God, but the sin does not at this point stop. There's another word attached to it. It does not have its uh, ending at this point. God puts it away. It reminds us, if you will, that there is something left which must be reckoned with in this word, however, which he uses. God forgives, but he never turns back the clock. He never does that with any sin. No sin can ever be as though it had never been. Rather, every sin, no matter how graciously and lovingly and forgivingly and completely forgiven by God, nevertheless sets in motion and in operation certain consequences. And those are unescapable. For instance, going back to the very beginning of Scripture, and all through Scripture we see this happening. We have the sin of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. This sin was forgiven, but nevertheless, from it there flowed and gushed forth, as you look at it, a dreadful and ever-widening stream of consequences which in the end all but engulfed our world in utter ruin. Original sin. We all are born with it. We all inherit it. And so what Adam and Eve did, the consequences of that sin still go on with every child born in every home today. Only Calvary was able to, as we understand it, stem that flood. The aftermath of sin, my friend. You might say this sermon today is kind of a dark sermon, but I hope not as I end it to you. There was also the sin of Abraham in Egypt. Remember, he went down there, and he was afraid of the Egyptians, and so what he, he lied to Pharaoh and said that, uh, that his wife was his sister. And Pharaoh showed favor to Abraham at that point, and he gave him a concubine by the name of Hagar. And remember what happened? Hagar went back with Abraham to uh, the land of promise, and the child was born, and that child was Ishmael. Who was Ishmael? Well, Ishmael brought up the race and religion of Muhammad, the aftermath of sin. And this race came to be a power that with the sword all but wiped Christianity off the face of Europe the aftermath of sin. That was the race that still exists today and with all the efforts of our foreign missionaries still stands almost as firm as a rock against the efforts of Christianity, the aftermath of sin. And that was the religion of the Islamic Muslim faith that still exists today. There was the sin of Jacob against Esau Remember, that sin was forgiven. Forgiven not only by God, but by Esau as well. And we see, as you read scripture, these two brothers, 
engulfed in a, 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 an embrace of forgiveness. But that's not the end of it. Their sons carried on the effort. And what happened? They, the quarrel which ensued from Jacob comes the race of Israel, from Esau the race of Edom. Many times down through the pages of history, down through the pages of biblical history, we see these two families locked in quarrels and fighting, and that goes on today. And as you study that, would you trace that stream back to its source? It will bring you to the day that Jacob, remember, lied to his blind father, took the skins of goats, put on his arms and on his back, and, uh, and covered himself with that, and went in and lied to his father with the help of his scheming mother, and stole the brother's blessing. That struggle continues today, too. As a matter of fact, the terrorist attack of September 11 are a direct result of the teaching of the Islamic Quran, the aftermath of sin. Some years ago, I can remember a young man that I counseled with. He had sinned greatly in his life, but he had turned to Christianity. And he lived a noble life for a period of time, but after a period of discouragement, he fell back into sin. And he came to me and he said, how can I ever rise again to the point where I had been? And all I could tell him was that sin has its consequences but strive to live a better life. Well, the wind is hushed, and the storm is gone, but the waves of the ocean are moving and rolling on. And reckless of all they have done before, madly they rush against the trembling shore and whiten the beach with foaming spray like the wreaths of snow on a summer or winter day, not summer. The wind is gone, the storm is hushed, but the waves of the ocean are rolling on, like the aftermath of sin. Thus far, in my illustrations, I've talked about history. Let us now turn to experience, yours and mine, because we have it. You know what sin is, as I do too, in our lives, if we are truly a child of God, we know that we are sinners. And you also know what it means to repeat that and repent and also to be forgiven. But let us less and less repeat that as Christians. In your own heart, therefore, you find proof of this, that all the peace of God has entered your heart and finds its way into the forgiven soul and brings a peace which passes understanding, as the scriptures tell us. Nevertheless, when God pardons, which he does, he cannot and does not give everything back. The years which the locusts have eaten can never be fully restored. The Lord also has taken away thy sin, Nathan said to David, but how be it? However, he said, and so in the aftermath of sin, there always follows, I'm going to mention four things that you and I are experiencing in our sin and cause to happen. 
terrible sting, first of all, of memory. It causes a terrible sting of memory. There's no need to argue that point, I don't believe. I have but to mention it, and instantly there flashes into the forefront of our minds the remembrance of some sin or sins that we've committed, committed perhaps years ago, remembered by us and forgiven by God. Yet there it lies, it lies in the brain, in the tablet of our memory, as fresh as though he had committed it today. Nor is that all. We never will forget it. It keeps coming back at times. God, I believe, has at least three good reasons for not letting us forget our sins when we even have been forgiven of them. To keep us humble first. He does that. Second, to make us more careful the next time. And third, to be careful and more charitable in our judgment of others. Have you experienced that? I believe you have. The poem, which you probably heard, I think explains that somewhat, with mighty leaps and bounds, I followed passion's hounds, my hot blood had its day. Last, lust, gluttony and drink drove me to hell's black brink, both night and day. And now that I grow old, and I'm in that category, my friend, and my slow blood is cold, my breath comes feebly now. I am followed by those same hounds with mighty leaps and bounds, which haunt me and will even unto death. Again, secondly, not only is there the sting of memory that's caused by the aftermath of sin, but secondly, there is always the loss of moral strength when we sin. That happens in our lives. Very once again, I found a young man again whose life was broken by sin. And that's happened in my ministry at times. And he was broken by sin seductive art. But touched with a Christ-like pity, I took him into my heart. He lived with a noble purpose and struggled not in vain after that. But the life which sin had stricken never rose as high again. It happens, my friends. It really happens. But not only is the fact that we lose moral strength, the third thing we lose and is caused by the aftermath of sin is the loss of moral influence. Nowhere will you find this more clearly illustrated than in the life of David himself. He was a king, loved by God, soldier, poet, 
sweet singer of Israel, a man after God's own heart. Then what happened? As we follow his life, there was Ammon. David never left a son who was an honor to his name. Remember what Ammon did? He had incest with his sister. One of the worst crimes in all of biblical history. But David didn't say much to Ammon after that terrible sin. And even when Absalom had Ammon killed in cold blood, David said nothing to him at all. Why? It was a loss, I believe, of moral influence, even from David himself to his family. Those sins of adultery and murder were part of David's life. And it hindered, I believe, in many ways, him castigating his children, if you will. And how often it is that parents cannot effectively discipline their children for the simple reason that they have never adequately disciplined themselves. It happened, my friend. How frequently, too, a man's influence in a church, as a minister, as an officer, as a Sunday school teacher, is greatly limited by the past of which he has repented and for which he has been forgiven, but which he can never completely live down the loss of moral influence lies in the heart of many people. What shall we say about the consequences of sin which are handed down from parents to children? We all know, of course, that it does happen that in the case of the so-called fleshly sins, the iniquities of the father are sometimes visited terribly upon the children, the sons and daughters. What is more pathetic than a little child deformed in body or in spirit, if you will, who is abnormal because of the sins of the father or the mother? You know, I would like to take every young couple, man and woman, into a little room I call hope. And that's a very important room in my mind. And when I do, I would show them a little child that is to be on a soft pillow in that room. And the angel face as the child looks up. And as they stand beside this sleeping child to remember whenever they yield to temptation or to sin, they are striking a more terrible blow than they could even with their fists to what they leave that child later on in life. Take care. Take care, I would say to that young man and woman. Take the greatest tenderest care for the little child that is to be. So young friends, mothers to be and fathers to be, Remember, the Lord also may put away thy sin, but how be it? Think of the child, my friends. Think, yes, 
of the little child that you now will have or carry in your arms. Now the fourth cause that comes to us of the aftermath of sin, I wonder, if I understand the scriptures correctly, the Old and the New Testament both, its teaching is this, that while we are saved by grace through faith, as Paul explains in Ephesians, nevertheless, the degree of our blessedness in eternity, the full measure of our reward. Yes, there are rewards in heaven. You can read that, about that in Hebrews. Even Jesus mentions it in the Sermon on the Mount. This will depend upon the quality of life that you and I live while here on earth as followers of our Lord Jesus Christ. No one would care to argue, I believe, that if you consider the thief on the cross who was saved at the last minute has greater rewards than the Apostle Paul has in heaven. Yes, there is a sense then in which the aftermath of sin flows on even through the gates of heaven, which you and I will enter someday by our faith in Christ, depriving us of rewards that are ours to have and to enjoy by the grace of God as we triumph over sin here on earth and temptation. The waves of the ocean are still rolling on. Well, am I addressing someone today who's not a Christian? I hope you all are, but if you aren't, Perhaps you have never thought through the matter of your decision in the light of the truth we are now considering. You probably have been supposing, maybe without thinking, if you will, very deeply about it all, that one time to accept Christ is as just as good as another. Don't, dare, don't dally, my friends, don't dally. Or today is the day of decision in our lives, it should be. And don't, real, don't forget that we can't put off that day of decision forever. There will come a time when we will meet the Lord at the judgment seat and be judged according to whether we have faith or not. By a death death repentance, you might be saved like the thief on the cross, but Little wonder the holy book speaks, this Bible we have in our hands, with such insistent urgency, insistent urgency, if you will, by the effect. Now is the accepted time, my friends. Now is the accepted time. Now is the day of salvation. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Hebrews speaks of that. You know, some of us are now facing the sunset of life. I see it every day at my time in life. And I'm looking forward to that time. You, of course, and I, my course is almost run. We've been Christians in name probably for a long time. I have been for some 72 years. 
Yet perhaps you've never attained any satisfactory degree of victory over temptation. I hope that's not the case. Some besetting sin may have been clinging to you for years, blighting your business and happiness, your marriage possibly, your influence, and dishonoring your Lord, if it's still there. All the while, the howbeits have been piling up. How urgent it is, my friend, to get it out of your heart that's dragging you down. And dilly-dally with it no longer. But by the grace of God, get it into the heart of Jesus Christ and buried in the deep seas of God's forgiveness. And now to young people. My message may have come too late to some, but not to you. The bloom of health is still in your cheek, I believe, not in mine. You've not yet been swept so far out into the terrible current which always follows in the wake of sin. Among the circles in which you move, doubtless very light views of sin and temptation prevail. I know, because I too talk to young people at times. According to some of these views, the worst thing about sin is to get caught. Sin itself is not so bad if a person is only careful to cover it up. If one is clever enough, he can often best sin at its own game, or maybe as a young person, you think that's true. Don't bet on it. Some of you, ensnared by this philosophy, have been content to try to outwit sin and are very little concerned about overcoming it. So let me remind you, with the truth of the ages behind me, as well as this text, which I have read, that at the heart of the universe, there is a moral principle encompassed in the Ten Commandments, encompassed in the Ten Commandments, which is as firm as Gibraltar, and he or she who hurls themselves against it, either in defense or in carelessness, is sure to fall back, not safe and sound, but bruised and broken. Who can say, then, how much you can save yourself of future heartache and disappointment and tragedy if you will only learn today and learn it well that in the moral and the spiritual realm as well as in the physical an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure one and all then of those of us gathered here let us be resolved henceforth to take hold of the grace of God in a new way.
and better way. For forgiveness and cleansing, for renewal and power, and prevention and victory, that we may be, more, be conquerors and more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know, May 21st, 1946, in Los Alamos Laboratory, a young man by the name of Sultan was experimenting with U-235. He would bring it close together, if you will, the two hemispheres of that, to demonstrate and find out atomic energy and the critical mass, as they called it. He would come close, and each time he'd use his screwdriver to push one away. He had done that many times. This day, his screwdriver slipped, and they connected, and there was a brilliant bluish flash in the room. And he could have ducked, possibly, even to have saved his life, but he didn't. Instead, he grabbed the two in his hands and pulled them apart. Probably saved the lives of seven others in that room. And as they were waiting for the car to take them to the hospital, he quietly said to his friend, you'll probably live, but my chances are nil. And nine days later, he died a horrible, painful death. Well, my friends, my Christian friends, there was a other, another young man, the very son of God, who entered into the terrible pit of sin. He was sinless himself, but he took the sins of us on the cross of Calvary and died on that cross for your sin and mine. And by faith, we then too shall live forever. Yes, do not delay it, if you will. Now, if you think about what I have said today, I've dwelt unduly upon the dark side of truth. But it's there, my friend. It's throughout the pages of history of, of, of Scripture. Remember, my purpose is full of light. It's the same of the aged Apostle John, who, writing to the church which was serving, he was serving, and which he loved more than life itself, gave expression to these tender words. My little children, these things I write unto you that you might and may not sin. And my friends, what I've said to you, these things I have said it, that you and I may not sin so much, may not sin so much. You know, there's another account I would like to close with. It took place in 1818. And there, 
a man by the name of Shemosh was born. He became a doctor and served in what was a period of called the period of young women's death. One in every six mother die as they carried a child. One in every six. Chimowish was a Hungarian and he wanted to help overcome a lot of these deaths. So he began to study it. And when the doctors began their day, they would examine corpses to further their knowledge of the human body. And they would move from there to the paternity ward without washing their hands. So Simowicz took a basin and before he entered the room where the mother was, he washed his hands in a solution of chlorine and water. He delivered over 8,000 babies and lost only 150 of that 8,000 he delivered. He tried to get his fellow physicians to listen to his experiment. It was simple. Wash your hands before you examine the mother. But they laughed at him. Who would listen to this Hungarian upstart? He died in an insane asylum at the age of 47. Died with the cries of anguished mothers. Died because they would not listen to him. His basin was thrown away. David said, wash me. Wash me, God. And John the Baptist said, wash me to Christ. And Christ, with the towel over his arm, said to Peter, unless I wash you, you will never live. My friends, wash. Wash and be washed in the blood of Jesus Christ who calls to us to receive him and receive the fact that his blood on that cross has cleansed us from all sin. Just four items today in this passage based upon that word that Nathan said to David the terrible sting of memory because of sin, it causes also the loss of moral strength and the loss of moral influence, as well as, and this is vitally important, greater rewards in heaven. Thanks be to God, my friends, for a wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. Almighty and eternal God, our heavenly Father,
What a Savior you have sent us. We don't deserve it, and yet, in thy great love and mercy and grace, we receive it by the power of thy Spirit. We thank you today for that gift, that gift freely given, which has changed our lives and made possible life and life eternal. We do ask it in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.